0: So there's a word that comes out of my mouth sometimes when I'm preaching and when it comes out of my mouth I have to admit that I honestly have kind of a Like an uncomfortable feeling sometimes And it probably sounds super weird, right? That there's a word that I say that, that comes out sometimes and as soon as I say it It, it gives me this kind of weird feeling. He, he, here's the word the word is someday you know, like, we'll talk about Jesus has is, 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 is died for our sins and he rose again so we can have life with God. And, and we're going to be in paradise and have eternal life with Jesus someday. You know, or we're going to be, we're going to have, have life the way it was meant to be with God someday. Or Jesus is going to return and set all things right someday. I tried actually to avoid that word, um, but it just, sometimes it just, it just comes out. And... It makes me uncomfortable when I say it, because whenever I say someday, there's this little part of me that says, but what about today? Okay, that's, that's someday, but what about this day? What about right now? And so today we're going to look at that question. We're going to think about that. Okay, we have the hope of eternity with Jesus. We know he's going to return and set things right, but what about, what about today? How does that affect, how do I live in light of that? How does that change what I do today? How does what's ahead change how I live now? Our lesson today comes from First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. It says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. As we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now before we go forward, I do just want to double check something, Matt's filling in the booth for Dave back there today. Matt, is it? are there yellow bars popping up when I'm talking on the screen back there? It sounds like my voice is a bit quiet today. Is it, am I a little quiet? Let me go back there and bump my mic up real quick, okay? I'll be right back up. Excuse me. All right. Check, check. Is that a little better? A little louder? All right, we're good. Okay. Should be... There we go. All right. Excellent. Thanks for your patience there. Apparently, when Pastor Sukup was here last week, apparently he has a louder voice than I do or something because my, uh, he uses my mic pack, and it, was, it was, must have been turned down from last week. So thanks for your patience there. So as we look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Thessalonica. So Thessalonica is a city kind of in the upper part of Greece. Um, so Athens and, uh, and like Corinth would be down in this lower part. Thessalonica would be in the upper part up there. And it's a city that Paul, a group of people that Paul had some close close connections with, some close feelings with, but also he'd endured some challenges with. Um, not, not over a long period of time, but, but kind of a short spurt of challenge. See, Paul, when he was there, he went to the synagogue in Thessalonica like he usually does. And when he went there... Um, He was preaching, and and, and many people actually were brought to faith in him. If you look at the the lesson from Acts, it talks about a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. What was pretty common at the synagogues at that time is that you would have people who were what they would call God-fearing Gentiles, or they would call them proselytes of the gate, and what that would mean is they'd be someone who came from a a, a non-Jewish background, from a Gentile background, who had been brought to faith in the, the, the God of the Old Testament, in the true God, but they hadn't been, you know, hadn't necessarily gone through all the ritualistic changes of being Jewish. And so there would be these God-fearing Greeks. And so a number of those God-fearing Greeks were brought to faith. A number of prominent women in the community were brought to faith. But uh, some of the people who were Jewish in background, and you can understand likely many of the Jewish leaders who had power, and then all of a sudden you see people uh, being excited about this other leader, they became jealous of Jesus. And so they, they, they actually went and got people to gather together and developed a. Um it got a riot going and got people all upset about it. And, and thankfully, they weren't able to get Paul. And, but the Christians there said, okay, Paul, you got you to gotta get out of here. We want you to be safe. And so Paul and his companions, they, they left. They went to the next town. Um, but actually, they were so jealous of Paul and so upset with Paul that uh, the people in Thessalonica, the, the, the Jewish leaders there, when they found out that Paul was in the next town, they actually just followed him there and drove him out of the next one too. But then Paul and his companions, they actually keep traveling down then to be safe and they get down to Athens and when they're down there, he's just, he's just all bent out of shape wondering about how they're doing. I mean, if there was that much pressure that he needed to leave or he's wondering, like, are, are these guys, like, are they holding strong? Like, are they staying, you know, in the faith or are they, you know, caving into the pressure? And so he, he sends back to, to find out how they're doing. He sends Timothy back there to find out what's going on with the people. And Timothy then returns to Paul and shares with him this really encouraging report that the people in Thessalonica, the Christians there, are, are doing great. Yes, they're facing challenges, but they, they're staying with what God's Word says. They're, they're trusting in Jesus, and they have a heart still for Paul. They're wondering about how he's doing, and they're caring for him. And it was just this really wonderful report. And so Paul sends this letter in response to Timothy's report. It's a letter to let them know just how much he is so thankful for what he's heard, to, to, to let them know how much his heart goes out for them, how much he cares for them, and reminds them of how much he has cared for them and, and, and looked out for them. But then also, it's a letter to really continue to encourage them to go forward in their walk of faith, especially as you're near the latter part of the letter, to, to think about what's ahead, to remember what your hope is, to remember that Jesus is going to return, and then to live accordingly. And that's where our lesson comes, in that section of the letter, when we read these, these verses leading up to it, where he's reminding them of what we taught, or what they were taught, what he taught them, and then to then live in that, to go forward in what Paul taught them what Paul and his companions had taught them about Jesus and about living in the reality of what's ahead, living in that reality now. So as we get into our sermon lesson today, lesson begins. It says, it is God's will that you be sanctified. Now, when it says God's will, this isn't just that, okay, this is, this is God's requirement or this is what God is, you know, up to or whatever. The word will, when you see in the original language, it expresses more than that. It, it, it's, God's, it's God's desire. This is what is on God's heart. It is God's heart for people to be sanctified. This is his choice. He he wants us to be sanctified, which sets up this whole lesson, which sets up this discussion. It's at the heart of what Paul's encouraging them and encouraging us in this section. And so if this is on God's heart, it's good for us to take a moment and consider, okay, what does it mean to be sanctified? In this lesson, we'll see the word sanctified, see the words holy. What does that really mean to be sanctified? sanctified to be holy the better we understand the concept of holiness and how god's holiness relates to us the better we will understand god's heart and how we do live today
1: in light of what's ahead so let's check out this video about holiness you've probably heard the word holy before or at least sang it in a church song once or twice and for most people this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person so God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the
2: Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further, in that the whole area around the sun is also
1: holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's
1: holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's
2: holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous.
1: Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work?
2: Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become
1: pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and
2: that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So
1: that's what the book of Leviticus is about.
2: Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there and he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim.
1: Yeah, that is a crazy creature.
2: (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah. It's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge, but there's one more development. This time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive.
1: So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know
2: until we meet this man, Jesus, and he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies.
1: Jesus is like that holy coal in
2: Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness, and that he and his followers were now God's temple, so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as
1: having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. but. Where is this all heading? So the last pages of
2: the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life.
0: So if you are someone who watches both the sermons from Cottage Grove location and our Fort Atkinson location or listens to the podcasts of both, um, you might go, this, that sounds familiar. Well, I used it last weekend in Fort Atkinson. Um, but I, it, it's, it's such a helpful video for me and, and, and I thought maybe for you as well to realize and to remember what God's holiness is and then to see what that means for us as people who are in Christ. It's amazing. So last week in here in Cottage Grove, the question was, am I a saint? And in Fort Atkinson, we asked it a little bit different. What does God think about me? And, and to realize that in Christ, you have been made holy is amazing. And it's why I'm wearing the white robe today, just to emphasize this. We had the all saints kind of question last week. In God's eyes, you are a saint. You are pure and holy. I mean, to think in like that video, I love that metaphor of the of the sun. You think about how big and powerful the sun is. And if there was some sort of way that the sun could be put inside of you, like that's just a crazy thought, right? But God created the sun, which means he's more powerful than the sun, and yet God makes his home in you. You are that clean, that pure. God wants to make his home in you through faith in Christ he has. When you were baptized into Christ, you were washed clean, united with Christ. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are actually taking inside of you the true body and blood of God, the creator, the sustainer, the the, the mighty one lives in you. This is how pure and holy you are In Christ and your existence that you're looking forward to with Christ when He comes to set it all right is, is living in a place that is that pure and holy that God is there with his pure, sanctified, holy people. This is God's heart for you. God wants you to be set apart, to be clean, to be pure, to be holy. That's what he wants for you for eternity. That's what he wants for you someday. And then what Paul is saying is that if that's what God's heart is for you someday, You better believe that's what God's heart is for you also today. God wants you to live as people who are clean, purified, set apart, people with rivers of living water flowing through you and and, and out of you, to be, be pure, holy people living that way. That's what God wants. That's his heart for you. Not just someday, but now. And that's why he goes on in this lesson and he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And I want to stop there just for a minute because why does he bring up sexual immorality specifically? Well, what, what's the deal with that? Is, you know, is God just being a prude <laughs> and, and just picking on that? Well, no. There's, there's a couple of things going on here. Part of it is just to realize the prevalence of sexual immorality in the world, in Paul's day and in our day. Um, so it, it, in Paul's day... When you think about all these cities with their, 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 their worship spaces to false gods, one of the things that we should keep in mind is that when there is this worship of false gods, typically it involved something to do with sexual immorality, like their worship practices did. Um, these places, these cities were full of, of like Corinth, like there was this, like, the number of people, the percentage of the city that were temple prostitutes is outrageous. And it's important for us to realize, so when you see, see these statues around these cities, it's not just, oh, there's a false god. There's this whole immorality that comes along with it. But then it's interesting, you know, if you think about our world today, and you think about what is so prominent in our world today, I mean, what is connected with so much in our world that people are fixed on? It's the same stuff. Maybe in a very, it wrapped in a different way, but, you know, I was, someone sent me a, a text message the other day with a link to, and it was, it was songs that, have, that turned 20 this year, and the link, and so they said, you want to feel old? You know, because now, you know, now songs that, that, that are 20 years old are the songs that I was really into in high school. Like, you know, my, my high school music is now 20 years old. That makes me feel old, you know? And, uh, and I was looking at this video that was highlighting all these songs, and she was showing clips of the music videos from all of them, and I was watching it, and I was going, man, this is trash. Man, I was listening to so, like, like almost every one of the videos was just, just trash. Not because the music wasn't necessarily bad. I mean, it was probably not the best quality music either. But, but, like, all the videos, like, the things they were showing, the things they were doing, like, almost every song that I was into in high school was just trash, you know? And if you look at how much shows and movies and different things we're doing, like what is connected to so much of it? This is so prevalent in the world. And it has been since Paul's day and before. It's not new, it's just wrapped differently. So that's part of it. But there's something else. Is when we we, we talk about sexual morality, and the way Paul does it here, is you can see that that the, the the issue, the challenge of of sexual purity versus sexual morality. That's the front line of the challenge, the battle between who we are in Christ and who we were before. It's the front line between life and death for the Christian. How is it the front line? Let's break down these words a little bit. When he talks about your body, the word body, he literally says vessel or instrument. Like the way you are to see your body is that your body is not the end-all, be-all. Your body is something that that you are meant to to, to use for purposes. It is not not the whole, it's not the be all, it it, it is part of you, but you are more than just the body. And so your body is something that you utilize and and, and put forward for some things. Okay, but now there's another word here that that we need to look at as as we keep that in mind, that whole vessel concept. The word passionate, it describes experiencing intense emotions, okay? Sometimes it's positive emotions. A lot of times it's really negative ones, actually. It, it's the same word when you talk about, like, the passion of Christ or the passion history of how he suffered uh, terribly. It, it's really being, being just kind of overwhelmed by emotion and, and feelings, sometimes in a, in, in a positive way, often in a negative way. And it is interesting, actually, if you think of a lot of love songs, what uh, even things that we portray that our world is just caught up in thinking of in a positive way is is that they'll talk about them in a negative way. Like I became lovesick, or you know I was just caught up in love, or I, I, I felt now I see what they call it falling in love, or you know because it's it's just this whole this big emotional thing that just takes you over and overwhelms you. Well, what Paul is saying is you need to control your vessel, your instrument and not live in passionate lust. So in other words, the question is is who is in control here? Are you in control of your body and your life or are your intense feelings, your intense emotions in control? Which one is it? Is it you when it comes to your life? Do you control what you do and your choices or are you simply completely controlled by the things you feel, these intense emotions that you feel? And I would make the case that in our world, people often talk and act like we are and should be controlled by these intense emotions we feel. I had a couple of different shows that I had re- recently. There's this line right, that I've heard a couple of times, and each time I just like this red flag where somebody says, says, well, you know, you can't help who you fall in love with. I know that sounds like mushy and sweet, but just think about it. In both settings, in both shows, was actually somebody using that to justify a relationship with someone that they had no business having a relationship with. But you can't help but you fall in love with. Are, are we really going to say that if I feel something for someone, then, then I, I'm just controlled by that and I, am just, I can't do anything about it? That's really an awful way to live, isn't it? And it, doesn't that really just downgrade our status as people? If we just say that, well, I felt this and so therefore I have to do it. But that's how, we off, that's how our world wants us to think. That's the right thing. And God wants us to to, to question, like, what is controlling us? Is it just my big feelings, or am I in control? Do I get to control what I do? As we ask that question, please please realize it's not that God is saying, ignore your big feelings and emotions. Sometimes we can swing too far the other way. Feelings are are not to be ignored, but they're not to be in control. Feelings are things that we, 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 we recognize and we respond to, but we don't let them control, there's a difference. Think of it like this, and I've got my bike up here this morning, not because I just flew in here so fast and ended up parking my bike here, but, um, but uh, I was just thinking about an example of how this might look, or how this might play out in our lives, and so I've got my bike here, never ridden it before in my robe, um, but uh, here we are. And um, by the way, kids at home, uh, I would t- my helmet's in the office, I would typically be wearing a helmet, just so you know, wear your helmets, kids and adults, safe. Um, and safe. Uh, but anyway, so you can see my bike's pretty dirty because I've gotten got into mountain biking quite a bit this year, uh, the last couple of years. It's just, it's awesome, it's so much fun. And um, so think of your body kind of like a bike. So if I'm riding uh, my bike and if I am going and, and I'm on the mountain bike trail and my bike is picking up speed and there's a curve up ahead, Do I go, you know, my bike's picking up speed. Apparently, I should just go faster. Do I just let it go? Or do I go, "Mm, okay, it's picking up speed. My way that I need to respond to this is maybe slow down a little bit and lean to the left or to the right. Like, I'm aware of the emotion. I'm aware of the feeling that it's taking. I'm aware of the momentum it's taking. But I don't let it control me. I I, I respond appropriately to it. Or say if I'm going and if I'm riding my, I ride my bike to church all the time, say if I'm riding home and, and I like to go up Oak Street over here, and right when I get to pass Tom and Linda's house, Tom and Linda, if you're worshiping at home, hey, that's how I, a lot of times when I go past them, I'm, hey, Tom, hey, Linda, because Tom's always out beautifying his yard. And uh, I get to the bottom of the hill and my bike starts, um, it's, it's a big hill right there, and, you know, my bike starts having a hard time going up. I realize that I need to shift down, and work a little harder I don't just go my bike is slowing down I guess I need to stop at the bottom of the hill sorry Stella I'm not getting home today sorry Ruthie I'm stuck here well no I need to respond appropriately it's the same sort of way with our bodies with whatever we do, it is, is we pay attention to the direction it's going. Maybe it's going too fast, maybe it's going too slow. Maybe, sometimes on the mountain bike trail, sometimes it's going fast and I see like a big jump up ahead and maybe it is scary, but maybe I do just let it go because that's the way you experience like the thrill of the jump, like maybe it is where you let it go. But either way, the bike's not in control. I am. And I pay attention to what's happening and then I respond, at, respond accordingly. That's how God would have us think about our bodies. Who's really in control of it? You don't ignore what's going on. You don't ignore the momentum or the feeling or anything like that. But you respond so that you are ultimately the one who is controlling what is happening, not the bike, not the vessel, not the big feelings that happen to you. Pay attention to them, respond to them. But who's really in control? When we think about... How does what's ahead affect how I live now? What's ahead being being that my life with Christ and being holy in Christ and united with Him, that means that now I am no longer somebody who lives controlled by my big intense feelings. I live differently. I live differently because, well, one, God says so in His Word to live differently, but Living by your big, intense feelings is directly tied to not knowing God. We were created to know God and experience his holiness and his purity and his goodness and his cleanness. When you live just by what you feel and what you see, you're turning away from God's goodness and His holiness that He's called you to His purity He's called you to the life He's called you to. Is turn away from knowing God and and turn another direction. When Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree, instead of going, "Okay, what does God want for me here? And what is God doing? And 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 how is God using this?" By taking the fruit, they did what. And Genesis says that they saw that it looked good and pleasing to the eye. They they did what looked good to them, rather than knowing God in His way they began to know their own way and their own way of doing things. Living by our big feelings and just letting those things control us is actually stepping away from knowing God the way we were meant to and the way we were called to. We've been called to be people who know God, who are filled with him. He doesn't want us to, to step away from him. He wants us to know him, and he also wants us to experience life with him in a way that is better and makes more sense. See, if you go forward with our lesson, it, it talks about how in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Not only does God want us to know him and his goodness and his ways, he doesn't want us to experience and to contribute to the mess that we see in this world. When it says no one should wrong his brother, it, it's not just, okay, you made an arbitrary wrong, but it's describing overstepping. We're crossing the line. It's when we, we just go by what we, you know, just let our feelings control us is when we often overstep in this life. And when that happens, it, it, it hurts people. Think of maybe like a, a private garden that has um, some, a sign-up or some rules about, you know, you know, not everybody should come in here. Maybe you don't bring your dogs in here and whatnot. And the reason why they have that, that rule, that boundary, is because if you don't take care of it the right way, you can damage it. And if you just let it go, let your dog run around in there, it can damage it. Same sort of way when we just go by what our big feelings are, instead of having control based on what God's Word says, can be damaging. And, and, and we've all experienced, in one way or another, the damage that comes from when you just do by what you feel instead of what God says. Maybe some of you in really difficult, abrupt ways and in, 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 in ways mentioned by Paul in this lesson know what it's like when somebody just acts in a way that they, they feel they want to do it and so they do it and you know firsthand that damage. Uh, maybe it's in your own life. Well, we all have it in our own lives in various ways where we just go by what we feel and we... Overstep and we see the damage that we cause and the shame that we feel afterwards and it don't just think of it in a sexual morality way That's one way, but it goes beyond that. I Mean, how many things have we said because we felt like it? But then afterwards man, we shouldn't have said that Or a choice we made, but then man, we shouldn't that wasn't the right way or even things that we consume or things We do or things we don't do, you know, things in life that we should take on, but we just didn't feel, didn't have that feeling, and so we didn't do it. When we've lived by those big feelings, that's when we overstep or step wrongly, and that's when we contribute to the hurt in this world, and when other people live that way, that's when we contribute to the hurt, when we experience the hurt in this world. And that's why Paul says the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. When we live by those feelings in that way, when we we just let them control us, when we, we, we live that way, we contribute to what makes this world broken, to what makes this world impure, to what makes this world a world where there is sin and death, sadness and pain. In the translation, it says that the Lord will punish men for all sins. And I, I think it's, it's an unfortunate way to say it. It's not necessarily wrong, but it kind of just sounds like God's just going to punish. And it just puts the focus on, on the, the, the punish part. But what God is doing, what, the way it describes in the original language, is that he will be a justice maker. God is going to be a justice maker. God loves people and loves his world. And when you love people and love this world, when somebody you love has been wrong, what do you want? What do you need there to be? Justice. It's part of valuing that person. And there's been a lot of talk in 2020 about justice in various ways. You know, and justice about things going on in the world, about things going on in individuals' lives, about things being set right and clarity of things and equal and treatment of things, all kinds of various ways. Justice is there. You can see it's on people's hearts. Things should be Right. Jesus and God, he's, he's the same way. He believes the same thing. He wants to set things right. And when you look forward to Judgment Day, it's really, you could call it Justice Day. It's a day when he returns and sets everything right, brings justice for every wrong that's ever been done. When we think about how we live now, it's in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return and bring justice and set everything right. Which then, if we think about the fact that we contribute to the, the issues in this world, when we think about all the ways that we have overstepped because we just felt like it, or understepped, or been, or whatever, that's where we can feel kind of fearful sometimes when we think about what's ahead, about justice, the judgment day in, in front of us. But that's when we got to just go back to the cross go back to what Jesus experienced on the cross you know I remember early on in in my ministry I remember talking with someone and having them open my eyes to why the cross is so ugly you know I mean what happens on the cross is really ugly I mean the I mean you know you know you see the sometimes the videos we share you make it kind of cringe right and I, you know, as, a, as a kid, I thought, okay, the, the reason why the, God chose the cross is because it shows the length of his love for us. And that's part of it. But there's, there, there's more that, that sunk in. The first time I really sat down, I had so many detail for me vividly how they had been wronged in their life. And I saw the pain and the hurt and the ugliness of how they'd been wronged. And then it dawned on me, this is why this is so ugly. Because here is where Jesus absorbed all the ugly in this world. The ugly injustice, the ugly pain, the ugly suffering, an innocent man dying on a cross with all everything that goes with crucifixion, all happened so that for any injustice in the world, you could say Jesus took it and he felt it. He absorbed it. For any wrong that's ever been committed, the rightful anger that that wrong deserves was all put on him that day. Any wrong that's ever been done in this world, Jesus absorbed it. He took it. All the anger it deserves was all there that day. That's why it's so ugly. Justice was met there for everything that's ever happened to us, but also for anything that's ever happened through us. Anytime that you've ever done that wrong, he took it and he paid for it. It's all been met. There's no punishment left. No justice left that needs to be served. Which is why when he comes and returns and brings justice day, sets all things right, you can be confident. You can look forward to that day as the day not when you're going to have to answer for what you've done. You're right with him. He's already took it. That's the day where you get to see what it's like for everything to be set right. To know that everything is is, is all, every injustice has been dealt with, every wrong has been done, And, and, and to find out what it's like to live in a place that is just flooded with the goodness and the purity of God. You're looking forward to when he sets all things right, and you're looking forward to that as somebody who is right with him. And if you're looking forward to the day that he sets things right, then that changes how we live now. Because, man, if, if we realize that what makes this world broken is living by, living by our own just whatever feels right to us, if we realize that that's what brings hurt and pain for this life, and if we are longing for the day where that doesn't happen anymore, or longing for the day where we finally live things God's way, then why wouldn't we want to start living that way now? You know? Like, why go back to the impure way? Why go back and allow ourselves to feel that way or live that way? Why do that? You know, the lesson, it wraps up, it says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. If we're looking forward to a world where things are just are, are, are pure and beautiful, and if we realize that God has called us, his heart is that he wants us to be pure and to experience the one who gives life living inside of us, if that's our calling, then why not embrace that calling and live that way? I've heard people say often, you know, the, the, the Christian faith, sanctification, live that way because that, that's, that's a way of showing thanks to God. And that's part of it. But it's also because that's the privilege you get to be as a Christian. Sin is the problem. Sin is what causes the hurt and the death. You've been rescued from that. So don't go back to it. Live in it. Live in who you are in Christ as someone who is pure and holy. Now, it's easier said than done because we still have a sinful nature that fights against us. But that's why the last line in this lesson is so beautiful and so important. Paul wants to let us know these words, they're not just things, they're not just his ideas, they're not just a self-help, it's not just a philosophy for how to live better. When you hear these words, you are hearing the very word of God, and God himself is working in you. You are encountering the power and the presence of God, and God the Holy Spirit has been given to you to empower you forward. To live as who you really are. To live in light of what's ahead, and to begin to taste it now. Yeah, you're going to struggle, you're going to triple up at times, but every time that happens, the Holy Spirit then can take you back to the cross, remind you that Jesus died for those sins, and that he rose again and gives you new life. And then he can propel you forward. You have the Spirit of God, the one who is more powerful than the Son living inside of you. You are clear and pure and holy. That's why I'm wearing this white robe today as a reminder. That's who you are. That's what your future is. That's what your eternity is. And if that's who you are, if that's what God's heart is for you, then someday, and if God has given you the spirit to empower you to now, to live that way now, that's how your life has changed today. You are pure in God's eyes, going to be with them when all things are set right, and he gives you the spirit now because he is, his heart is for you to live as pure and set apart now. That's how what's ahead changes how you live.